the hell is this? Why did you get me now? Let's get rid of this person. That's good timing, isn't it? Let me get rid of them, all right? Okay, no worries. Sandy, I'll call you back. I've got somebody else more important on the other line. Hello, I'm Kirsten O'Brien. Welcome to 16 Summers, the podcast that really only wants the answer to one simple question. If you had to choose between the childhood that you had or the one you're giving to your children, which would you pick? Right, I feel at this point you should start playing like the Hovis music in the background because right. we were poop. We used to get up half an hour before we went to bed. It was an improvement, like I said, that's what you want to be of his father. So I knew his, his shortcomings weren't his fault and he loved us. I do have lots of really fond memories, but they were never they were never around kind of lavish holidays or spending money. It was all about kind of making my own fun, I guess. You totally blindsided me. I haven't talked about that for 20 years. <laughs> If we want our children to improve their lives and the lives of people around them and make it a better world, then we have to do our bit. This week I'm chatting to Derek Evans, otherwise known as Mr Motivator. He rose to fame as the lycra-clad fitness instructor on breakfast telly show GMTV in the early 1990s. Now he runs his own online fitness club. He was born in Jamaica, but we'll hear how he ended up in Leicester by the time he was 10. He now lives in Manchester and has three children in their 20s and 30s. But who had the better childhood? It's funny, when you said Derek Evans, I was thinking, who is that? Who's he? <laughs> who is he? Where did he come from? <laughs> so good to be with you, Kirsten. That's all right. It's really good to have you here because I'm fascinated you. in your past. So I'm going to ask one question, which is... <laughs> Would yes. you rather have the childhood you had or the childhood you are giving to your kids? Do not answer yet. I want that from uh -huh. you at the end because we're going to okay. chat about your childhood, their childhoods, all that okay. kind of thing. Sure. Uh, so I'll just pitch straight in with where did you grow up? You know, the first 10 years of my life was in Jamaica um, because I was given away at three months of age by a lady in the market uh, who saw me in the hands of my mother and said, what a beautiful boy. And we all know that's true. And um, and uh, she gave me up then at three months of age. And so the first 10 years was in Jamaica. And then after that, I came to the UK and uh, then spent some time in Leicester until I got deported to London. Right. Hang on, because you've said something instantly very major there, very, very casually <laughs> and quite yeah. a sort of jokey way. So yeah. you were genuinely given to a lady in a market. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, when I was only three months of age, uh, my mother was very young. She couldn't manage me, and uh, and that's what she did. But you know, in, in the 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 judge as to whether decisions were the right decisions that you know is based on where you are, and uh, and so therefore that was the right right thing to do. And uh, have you ever been in contact since with your real mom? Did you yeah. know her growing up? No, 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 not at all. Um, it so happens that she was in the UK, but I'm not sure whether she, she was here when I arrived in 1962. Uh, all I know is that during my years on GMTV, the Sun newspaper carried an article saying I was looking for my mother, who was called Enid Richards. She happened to have a daughter who was here, who noticed the name, got in touch with her mother, who by then was in Jamaica, and asked her whether she knew of a Derek Evans. And she had to admit, yes, she had never mentioned me to, before to her family um, uh, because she obviously got married later on in life. And uh, so we all went back down. We all went down to Jamaica. That's the Sun newspaper and GMTV. And we did, filmed this wonderful reunion at age 45. And was it wonderful for you emotionally? How was it? Not really. Not really. Because the thing is, you know, when you have um, adopted parents who perform the role of mother, father, parents, uh, you don't really need anybody else because as long as you're showered with love, attention, and they give you a, a future, as far as you're concerned, that's your mother and that's your father. And so meeting her was like meeting a stranger or just meeting my incubator. She obviously had all kinds of recriminations and said blah, 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 and, you know, and stuff like that. But it really didn't matter because the closeness that you form when in those formative years with your mother or, or father wasn't there. So it was literally at age 45 meeting a stranger. And when you meet a stranger, you have a choice. Do I want to get to know you? Do I really want you in my life? Do I want to be around you? And that's basically where we are. I mean, I speak occasionally, but not really. I can't call her mom because she's not mother. And how does she, is she reconciled with that as well? If you've made um, that decision? Yeah, I think she's, she's had to purely because, I mean, you know, it's, 
as I say, when you're 45 years of age, I, I've never hankered for the, the need of a, a, a mother, a, a birth mother. I've never felt I needed it, you know, because I, I was provided with so much love, care and attention and upbringing that really there was not a gap in my life. And in many ways, you could argue that the, the, whatever I was provided by the Rose, who never changed my name to them, whatever I was provided by them, but a foundation stone for what makes me who I am today. And, and so therefore, that has got to be a good thing. If I was dead, if I was in prison or in hospital, well, then somewhere along the line, there was a bad decision made. But no, the decision that was made was the right decision. What was that 10 years like then before you came to the UK? Yeah, I mean, those first 10 years of my life were obviously formative years. And when you're born into a Jamaican kind of uh, household, discipline is really kind of very strict in terms of what you can do, what you can say, where you can go, how you can be. Uh, you're kind of taught to be... Uh, independent real early on. I mean, from as the moment you can walk, you're given duties to around the home. It could be anything from feeding the goats to actually, you know, getting, you know, going and fetching the cow and bringing the cow in last thing at night. It can be, you know, you're given errands to do. You could be going down to the shop with a list to pick things up. I mean, whatever you need to do, you had to, you had to do it at that early age. And I think it teaches you independence, but also that you're taught respect and the church played a a major part of my uh, first 10 years, uh, well, it did continue until it was about 18, 19. But those first 10 years in Jamaica, it was important. My dad, mom, everybody on a Sunday morning after church, do knew we, there was choir practice and we were always taken along. And um, and that's what it was like, you know, very basic. You know, you lived in a home where there was, um, you know, one room for mother, father, and then there was three of us sharing the other room. And you had outside kitchen, outside toilets, no running water. Um, and that's what it was like. And every Saturday morning, they all went off to the market to sell their goods. And you were left with uh, half a coconut, which had dried. So you got the husk and everything else, and you got red, this red polish. And your job was to polish all the floors in the house to a red, um, in a red polish that made your face show up in the shine that you had to create. And if that wasn't done right when they got home, I mean, you'd have to do it all again. That's what it was really kind of like. And you had two siblings did you say as well by then yeah yeah i did and uh you know they 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 had the bulk of everything they got everything and you were kind of last around the table but you know listen i mean as i say you know you can look back on it now and you can go i wish that hadn't been the case but i have to say listen i mean every single opportunity to grow you're given and every opportunity to develop and to be independent and you're, you're taught and uh, and that's what happens with life and school the difference main difference between school and life is a school you're kind of taught a lesson and given a test in life you're given a test which often teaches you a lesson and that's how it is do you feel like it was hard at that point in your life then do you, do you think that part was tough but that's what I, I look back on I look back on it and, and you go yeah that was tough because don't forget, you know, well, you wouldn't know. The You never get a, a Jamaican parent who, who brought you in and make you sit on their knee and they tell you they love you or read your story or whatever. That just didn't happen. As far as they're concerned, their role was to put bread on the table, clothes on your back, and give you an education. And that was it. And you had to basically, you know, from then on, just pick up on everything else. But if I look back, I go, yeah, that's tough. And the reason why I say it's tough is because... The way I'm with my own children, I'm quite the opposite. And that's why I don't subscribe to the notion that just because you come from a household where you get beaten or whatever it is, that means you're going to beat your children. I just didn't beat my children. And there's no way, you know, I mean, I reason with them. I can remember my son, who's now 37, 38. I can remember the only time he got a smack from me, which was April the 24th, 1994 in Australia. Wow, specific. <laughs> and, that is ingrained. Only time. Only time. <laughs> As for my youngest, who's 25 this year, she's never had it because what happens is that you learn that if you reason with your children, there are other ways of doing punishment. You don't have to to uh, to resort to smacking and stuff like that. My my eldest daughter, I'll always remember the first time she did something wrong. She stole something from a shop, and I took her I took her to the police station. And I said to the officer, could you do me a favor, please? Could you take this young lady and show her what the cells are like? <laughs> so he said, why? I told him why. I said, because she needs to know that this is where she's going to end up. She was 11. He took her in and took her down to the cells. He says, young lady, this is where you're going to end up if you steal. 
this is where you're going to end up. This is where all people end up. And she's never stolen again. Tough love. But I didn't have to smack her. That's using your brain. And that's when, you know, you didn't get authorities and organizations saying, you can't do that to your children. You can't expose them to that. It's going to traumatize them. She's a wonderful mother with four children right now, very balanced. And she's strict with her kids, stricter than I was with her. And so you've got a selection of children we'll come on to, but in terms of your siblings, how did you get on with them? And were they birth siblings? What what, what was the setup? And when well, were, you, were you the first to be adopted? How did it all fit in? They, they, they were not birth siblings. They were they belonged to my adoptive parents. Uh, that were their their kids, and um, and really, I mean, again, you were there. You know, I mean, they they took in lots of people. You know, every time a meal was on the table, you'd be shocked at how many people around the table. And especially when you're at the bottom of the, the, the pile and normally you only get the gravy because the chicken is finished. By the time other, loads of other people have eaten, you're left with it, not even the gravy. Um, but, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day that was a pecking order of things. And, and what it does, interestingly, if you come to my home today and I'm eating, I cannot continue eating unless I've offered you some of what I'm eating or I've actually made you something to eat. And I just can't, I just can't help it. That's just embedded in me that you must always share whatever you've got. And I can't, literally, I've taken my food off the table, covered it up and put it down. If the person says, I don't want anything to eat, I'm okay. Right. And did did all of you come over at 10, when you were age 10, over here? No, did- no. The way it worked was, in fact, when I was age eight, my, my, my dad left and came to Jamaica, came to the UK with my uh, sister, who's obviously a lot older than me. And they lived in Leicester. We then followed two years later in 62. That's my mom and I. And my sister by then had had a son who was left in Jamaica with us. And we came up. Uh, Their eldest son, he remained in Jamaica. So we came up and lived in Leicester. A year later, my mom didn't like it. She left and went back to Jamaica. So I was left here with my dad. And my How was that then? How did that? Yeah, well, I mean, that was, that was, that was probably the toughest bit because I had a real kind of bond with my um, with my stepmother, you know, real bond. You know, she had she's one of those great big bosom black woman, right, who cuddly up next to her chest, right, whenever you know uh, my my father was to reprimand me or tell me off or smack me, and she was always there to bathe you, you know, if you if you because when he give you a good beating, right? You had a good beating, so she was there to mop up after him. And so when she left and went back to Jamaica, I, I was kind of broken, I think, for a bit, I remember, because I you know, I remember crying like crazy, and she's saying to me, don't you cry, you're going to make me cry, as, as she left. Um, but, you know, she had to do what was right for her, and uh, she went away, and I was left with um, my dad. And he, the only thing you really remember about him is going off to the factories every day, and he'd be riding a bike going off. We were living in Leicester, and he'd be riding down the road on his bike. And I remember him coming home. And I remember we, you know, even from a young age, 12, 13, I had to be the one who was doing the cooking and stuff like that and uh, and go to school. And he was a real disciplinarian. He was t- he was just tough. He just saw that, you know, you had to do what he said, whether he was right or wrong. And that's how he was. But, you know, you knew that time eventually would catch up and eventually I would grow up and, and, and I'd be out out from under his umbrella but at age 17 he he retired and left and went back to Jamaica so I was left here on my own at age 17. And could you not have gone back to Jamaica when when your mum did? Um, Not really not really because the whole idea of coming to the UK was it's part of it wasn't Windrush years but it was actually the 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 back end of it where in fact the country was looking for people to to help in factories and in the hospitals on the buses and so lots of Jamaicans came up for that better life and the majority of them who are now retiring or have retired um have benefited from coming up and staying here and and working through the system and and you know, getting a retirement pension and good health care and, and stuff like that. So I'm glad that she didn't take me out there because otherwise you and I wouldn't be speaking today, would we, Kirsten? And then there'd be a gap in your life. There would definitely be a gap in my life. Um, <laughs> how much of a culture shock was it coming to Leicester from Jamaica? Well, here's the first thing is, right, can you imagine you're born into a world, right, where in fact we don't have television in Jamaica. There's no television. And you had one of these great big old radios, I think they called it a blue spot, which is a huge, great big cabinet thing with sliding doors where 
you'd pull out a, a tray, which on that tray had your turntable that you played your 45 or 78 records. And then down below it, right, it was like a little cabinet with two doors that you opened up. And that's where you put all your drinks and stuff like that. And, uh, and then up on the top on the right was the radio section of this blue spot with the buttons that you press that either allowed you to play music or you listen to the radio. That was our only communication with the outside world. So when you get told that the streets of England are paved with gold, you believe it. When you, you're told an airplane will fly, this is 1950-odd, you, you kind of believe it, even though you've never seen one. And when they tell you that white people live in England, you look at a white sheet of paper, and that's your vision of a white person. So you talk about a culture shock. Yeah, sure, when I arrived in Leicester, where were the white people? Um, you had Ina Sharples on telly. What is a television? Um, you have snow. What is snow? Right? Why is it the sun shining and it's still cold? Uh, why do I have to wear um, big woolly clothing right in the middle of a beautiful sunny day? Um, how do you explain that? How do you explain the fact that if I was to, there's no way I could call Jamaica, but why aren't we on the same time zone as Jamaica? Why is it different? How do you explain that to a child who, you know, <laughs> right? Those days, those days, I mean, were, you know, kind of interesting. And it was a big, it's almost like learning a new language when you arrive here, because yes, we spoke English, but even so, you know, it's a, it's a new language in respect of um, just the way in which culturally things were so different, you know, going to the corner shop. Well, you know, we didn't have going to a butcher that was organized where, you know, I mean, in Jamaica, you walk down, down behind some bushes down the back and that day they may have killed a goat or whatever it is. And you say, well, I can afford, you know, the legs and you buy the leg and you go back home. What is a rump steak? I didn't know what a rump steak is. What is a sirloin steak? A, it's a piece of beef. <laughs> That's what it is. Uh, chicken drums. What are drumsticks? No, we buy the chicken and we cut. In fact, we didn't buy the chicken. The chicken was running around in the yard and your job was to actually catch it, kill it, right? And then you take the feathers off and tasty as it is, fresh as it is, beautiful. Frozen chicken, what's that? <laughs> Fridge, what's that? Freezer? Where did the freezer from? Come on. <laughs> so, so there was loads to learn, loads to fit in with. Did did you yeah. connect with the with the local community or, or were you in your sort of expat community? What was your world? No, because it, when you, what happened was, and I don't know whether it was a government um, decision at the time, but depending on what island you came in from, they would recommend certain parts of the country that you go and live. So, for example, in, in North London, which I learned much later on, People from the smaller islands like um, Antigua, um, Montserrat, most of them lived in North London. And then when you came up to the Midlands, people from Jamaica and Barbados and Antigua lived there. If you went up north towards Liverpool and Manchester, you would get a lot of people, right, from the smaller islands who lived there, not many Jamaicans. So community-wise, you were in a, in a kind of almost a bubble in that you met people who had come over from Jamaica uh, who you didn't really know, but you met a lot of black people. And so... And so it is. And, and to be honest, integration was much easier then. You know, I, the only time you notice anything was you did notice certain prejudices and that prejudice is ignorance. Right. And um, but in general, you know, you were kind of far more accepted. You would go next door to actually borrow some sugar or some coffee. Um, every house that we lived in had a little passageway down the side. You walk down a passageway, and that's where the coal scuttle was around the back, and that's where the bin bin was around the back, and that's where your toilets were, which was outdoors, and your kitchen was outdoors, and it's the old toilets with the old long chain that you pulled, um, and and that's how it, that's how it was. So next door, you look over into next door, next door, you know, um, you never heard an alarm going off. You never heard, you know, next door got broken into last night. Um, it, it doesn't didn't happen. You know, you borrowed sugar coffee, tea, you get sent by the neighbors to go and do errands. The neighbor would say, could you go down the road, go and collect something for me? You'd go. You know, if you see a policeman, you'd say, sir, see a teacher, you'd still be as respectful as if you're in the classroom. I mean, that's how things were. We reminisce about it, of course, because I think with the breakdown of society, I, I take it way back to the fact that those things that we used to do, we no longer do. The Boys Brigade played a real important part of my life. You know, it was... Um, you know, you were there, you did everything from camping to, you know, I was a mace bearer and so we were a marching band and, and they taught you so many things, so many life skills, which I, you know, I embrace till today. 
Did you have any sort of mother figure in your life, you know, a friend's mum, an aunt, anyone that sort of stepped into that role in any shape? Not really, because again, you know, don't forget, you know, you know as, as Jamaicans are all West Indians, really, to be honest, you are taught to be very independent. You know, if, if a dog has its young at eight weeks, you, you, you kind of take it away or the mother's not interested any longer. The mother walks off and said, you got teeth, you're hurting me, stop it. Right. <laughs> that, that's I think in many ways that's what happens in the Western community. The family walks off and go, You've got your life skills, get on with it now. You're young. Of course. What are you gonna learn? How are you gonna how are you gonna learn? How are you gonna manage? If you fall, you get up. If you were in a in a Jamaican household and you fell and started crying, they'll come and beat you and say, Let me give you something to cry for. And sometimes, right, what would happen is that as soon as you start crying, they go, Why are you crying? What are you crying for? You just hit me. Yeah, but what are you crying for? Stop crying before I hit you again. <laughs> <That's how> it <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? Because you're laughing about it and, and we know because, you know, I'm coming up 50. It, it, there was a different era, but there might be some people listening absolutely horrified by this. Do, do you get that? And particularly from your own children, do you ever get, Dad, that sounds, you know, crazy? No, no, no. Because, I mean, listen, everything evolves in life. You know, the only, what do they say? The only change, the only thing that's constant in life is change. And change must happen because as we learn and as society gets more involved and as you get organizations setting up and as governments start getting involved in people's private lives and their homes, so things change. And you could argue that what we have done is we have taken away the power that parents, teachers used to have and the police used to have. So we have a situation now where, in fact, we have such unruly behavior and behavior that one time would never happen because the extended community policed you. If I was outside and did something wrong before I got home, the message would be at home that I was doing something down the road I shouldn't be doing. But nowadays, if the neighbor complains, you're more likely to attack the neighbor than attack your own child. Wrong. The thing is, right, we need to encourage. Yes, there's some neighbors out there who are who are terrible, who are horrible, who do horrible things to kids. And I'm sure it went on in my days. But to be honest, if they got found out, they wouldn't be around for long. Um, but, you know, I, I maintain that there are lessons to be learned. And, and I think that we need to somehow um, do something about what's going on with society at the moment, because there is a breakdown. Right. And, and, and I'm, listen, I'm a militant because when it comes to things like conscription, I would bring back conscription to any child who doesn't go on to further education or who is not gainfully employed. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, make them go and learn a trade in the army, make them, you know, come out better equipped for the future. And I think that's where you should be responsible. So you're teaching them discipline, you're stopping knife crime and stuff like that, because idleness is one of the greatest things, I believe, that stops kids being productive. And what you need to do sometimes is recognize that at school, they don't necessarily, they're not, not, everybody can keep up academically. So why should you be punished for the future? Give them another chance. You've got to go in the army if you're not into further education. You've got to go into the Air Force, wherever it is. But whilst you're in there, you can learn to be an uh, engineer. You can learn to be a computer engineer. You know, think about all the industry for the future where we need people involved. And that's what they go and learn. In Jamaica, I said to them, they should do it there. That would stop the crime rate. They should go and learn how to work with tourists, how how to actually be a farmer, and you learn all that in the army. And I just think that's what we should do. Don't just hand out and say, okay, you're entitled to your $20 a week. No, no, I don't agree with that. But look, those are my views. That's what we're here to talk about, your views. I'm interested, as he's saying that, what you were like at school. Me? I, you know what? I was not the brightest student. I mean, I'm so clever now. It's amazing. <laughs> but also, in, in, in the days when I was at school, there was not a real push on you coming out with qualifications because you had these people called careers officers. And these careers, career officers would look at your mock exam and they'd go, well, from your mock exam, I think all you're going to be good for is to work in an office. They almost dictated your future. Uh, there was not a, you must go back in, you've got to study hard, you've got to definitely get your English, your maths and stuff. Far from it. It's your parents who were required to actually push you down that route if they wanted to. But it didn't happen. And so you could come out with our qualifications and you could be working in a job where there were apprenticeships available, where they would teach you the tricks of the trade. I knew, learned everything about marketing, production, distribution, marketing. Uh, uh, I said again, marketing, production, distribution, selling 
by working for various companies. I was one of the first people to work for um, Green Shield Stamps, which you wouldn't know anything about. And Green Shield Stamps, stamps. (laughs) you used to collect all these stamps every time you made a purchase. It's basically the prelude to what we now have in terms of collecting points. But you got stamps and they went into a book. And once your book was full, full, you'd have a, 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 a brochure. And in the brochure, it'll tell you how many books you need to have completed to be able to get that item. So if you're after a TV, maybe 200 books you've got to have completed. And so it went on. I worked for them and I learned so much. Mark, they sent me away on so many courses. And then from there, I worked for Argus Distributors, and I worked on setting up the very first Argus Distributors was in Collindale, Northwest London, and I worked on stocking the shop and selecting some of the range that went into the very first brochure. I learned to be a buyer. Then I went on to work for Rank Hovis McDougall, who sent me away on all these courses. One of them, I remember, was the Essentials of Management. And everything to do with those four pillars, you know, the marketing, selling and stuff, you learned all about it. You had to go into Tesco and work on stacking shelves and stuff. So you learned about merchandising or you went along to a factory up north, right, where you learned about the production of drinks and stuff like that. That's how we were taught in those days. That was your education. What about friends? Were you a popular guy? Did you make a lot of friends? How did you fit in that sense? Oh, you know something, Kirsten? When you're good looking, you don't have a problem with friends. (laughs) So you struggled, yeah? (laughs) Oh, man, don't get cheeky, Kirsten. At least I have a face for television. (laughs) (laughs) You've got the body for it, definitely, and I have not. (laughs) Don't go there now. Remember, you know, I'm 68, so I've been a long time on this earth, so I've got a a plaster for every story, in other words, an answer for everything. No, no, no. Look, I mean, in those days, right, I was a mod. So I had my Lambretta scooter with all the mirrors up the side, right? Once you got that, you got the helmet, you get the girls. I mean, honestly, you'd never traveled alone. That's number one. Number two, um, I belonged to the Boys Brigade. The Boys Brigade was like a modern, really kind of updated health, not health club, but a kind of club that we all belonged to. That means that we'd go out for the coffee bars and play music on the old jukebox and uh, you know you'd have go camping and you'd uh, go for day trips and stuff like that so we're always meeting up with friends and the church was really kind of very active in in my life in those days so every church thing you were doing whether it was you had a music group going or there was a choir you were doing or you were doing gymnastic demonstration so your life was all around the church so we all had Huge amount of friends, and one of them, in fact, two of them from those very days, are still my friends till today. I mean, Mercia is 70 now, and uh, he and I, I train him three times a week because he recently had an operation, and uh, so I train him uh, three times a week virtually. Um, but he and I talk literally almost every day, you know, and he lives here in London, and, uh, and the other friend of mine lives in London as well. They all followed me down here. When I got deported, it's like they got lonely and they all moved down to London. <laughs> What do you think would be the worst bit of your childhood? I don't think I have any bad bits. You know, I say this to people all the while. It's a bit like I say to people, I've never made a bad decision in my life. And they go, how can you say that? And I said to him, here's how you do it. Every decision you make at the time when it's made for you or you made a decision, you evaluated everything around you and you made that decision. So the decision was right at, at the time. Just because you got renewed or extra knowledge and you look back and you go, I wish I hadn't done that. That's wrong. No. The measure of whether your decision was right or wrong is where you are. So if you're not dead, if your leg's not broken, if you're not walking around with with a serious limp because of a bad mistake you made, a bad decision you made, then every decision you made must have been the right decision. So I say to people right now, measure your the success of your decision based on where you are. So for example, if a relationship is, is no longer happening, it's broken up, don't go, I wish it hadn't happened. Wrong. Because if, if it's lasted for six minutes, it was you learned something from it. If it lasted for six years, you've learned even more from it. Because in life, good things sometimes have to fall apart so that better things can fall together. So therefore... If you find that all of a sudden the relationship's gone wrong, you put 10 years into it, you go, I've invested 10 years, guess what? So has the other person. And just because you've drifted apart and you no longer have the same dreams, aspirations you made, and you go, you know what? We've moved on now. We're at a different stage. That doesn't mean it wasn't worth it. Of course it was worth it. Look at all the good things. Sit down and work out 
what were the good times you had? And trust me, a long route, you had some fabulous times, whether it was going out for a meal, whether it was a party, whether it was a holiday, whether it was just a laugh that you had over silly jokes and stuff. There were all things that make you a richer person. That's a really, really positive outlook. I love that. Um, on that then, do you have like your finest moment in your childhood when you were living your best life, as it were, your absolute best life? Oh, you know, when you go back to childhood, because I maintain, I think the answer is almost the same, isn't it? Because if, if we look back to try and evaluate and say, this is my bestest time, we're using current knowledge to try and deduce whether that was the bestest time. You see what I'm saying? So in many yeah. ways, you could argue that what we should be saying is, listen, everything that happened to me happened for a reason. And the end result of all of it is that my childhood was great. Because what have I learned? What's the richness of what I've learned? I've learned to be far more loving to my children. I've learned to cuddle them far more. I've learned to tell them I love them far more. I've learned to actually spend more time with them. I've learned to take them in the car and take them for drive. I've learned that between all three of my children and my eldest didn't get as much as I'm able to give my youngest. Because when my eldest came along, I was a single parent looking after her. So I was getting up early, dropping her off at the childminder, picking her up after work, coming home, reading to her, telling her stories, putting her to bed, and then it starts all over again the next day. So she didn't get much time, much patience from me. Whereas because my life improved as I went along, and I, be, I got to the position where I was able to afford different things, it meant that the degree of my love that I gave, not the degree, the many the increased ways in which I'm able to express my love came along for my youngest. So she benefited from the tough years I had with my eldest, whereas now she goes, she almost just has to look at me and blink, and dad is running after her. You know, dad, can you pick me up from work? Dad, can you, my car's... I got a puncture. Can you come and change the wheel? I didn't have to do that with my eldest. I'd say, sort it out yourself. So in some ways, you, in a way, replicated part of your childhood then. If you ended up as a, a single father uh, with a child, that, uh, there's an element of, of replication there. How did that come to be? Let's let's move on to, to your children well, well, now. It's, it's, I would say it's not even replication. I would say because of what happened to me, because of being given away, I became a single parent because I was determined that whatever happened to me, history wouldn't repeat itself. So, so in terms of me at age 21, having a daughter and at age 23, becoming a single parent to look after, look after her, thank God for the training I had. Thank God for the, the, um, the opportunity I had from when I was given away to learn all that I had to learn at a very early age, because that gave me the ammunition to be able to look after her. And it was great. I mean, I have, I have to, I thank my eldest daughter so much, even though she wasn't aware it was going on. And I say to her, thanks to you, right? I didn't do the, what 20 year olds normally do, what 25 year olds normally do. I didn't do it because at the end of the day, whereas we might be out there, you know, checking out whoever is next on the plate or to be chalked up on the, the bedpost. I mean, I wasn't doing that because I felt I had to be responsible to my, my daughter and not expose her to anything other than the love of her dad. And whoever I got friendly with had to be someone who was going to be around for a long time, not someone who was just, you know, passing for the evening. And so, yeah. Did she live with you? Where, what happened to her well, mum? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I, I, I gained custody. Her mother was young. And, you know, when I say young, her mother was 20 when she had her. Um, but at 23, she asked me to just look after her for what was meant to be just a few weeks. And in the end, I got so used to it, I fought in court and I won. And they, um, and I, you know, which was unheard of, but I won custody of her. And, uh, and I looked after her. So, you know, that was great. Wonderful upbringing. Oh, my Lord. I wouldn't take any of that back, I tell you. Was that difficult then? Try, because uh, that is uh, back then a woman's environment. A woman's not going out to work because she's bringing up the child. She's doing the nurture. How difficult was that for you to do all of that balancing and, and have your first daughter there with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah but it, you know what? Of course it was difficult because I was, and uh, once I was living in Edgware, and I remember, well, before that, there was a point at which we were, we were homeless over in um, Finsbury Park, and we were living in bed and breakfast waiting for the council to give us a place. Um, and then there was another point at which, you know, um, 
I, I moved into a rented apartment and I had a one room and she and I had to share that one room. Um, and the days were long. We used to get on a 266 bus from Mill Hill all the way down to um, Harlesden, drop her off at the Childminder, back on the 260, down to work. I rang Hovis McDougall. And then, then the reverse happened at the end of the day and come home and you got to cook and bathe her and plait her hair and do homework and stuff like that. But you know what? I just did it because, you know, love is one of those things. You know, love, they say love conquers all. And if you, you know that, if you're in love, right, and I'm not talking about, you know, the passion between two adults, but if you love your child, right, I mean, it's the fuel that kind of keeps you going. It's a fuel that when you're feeling tired, it picks you up. It's a fuel that when, you know, they cry at two o'clock in the morning because they're bunged up and they can't breathe. It's a fuel that gives you the ammunition to put a tissue around their nose and get rid of the catar. I mean, you know, it's, it's what you do. And, you know, your instincts come to the fore. And I think men can be men and women at the same time, just like women are having to be men and women at the same time with a child. You know, you have to do the soft and you got to do the tough. And, and that's what you do. And it makes you a better person. I and, think you uh, are unusual in that. I know you're saying it's what you do, but I, I think a lot of people would say, no, actually, you're really unusual in that. And just dipping into that, you, you mentioned it was the culture, but also your circumstances. How much do you think you, you were able to do it? You had the tools because of the culture you'd been in, or was it the circumstance, as you say, of being adopted and, and that setup that you grew up with? Yeah, I think it's question. I think it's a combination of everything, you know, um, because they're all bits and pieces. What makes up each one of us are all different little pieces of this jigsaw puzzle. When put together, you've it forms a picture of you in the middle. That's what it is. And you remove any of those bits and you're incomplete until you find that bit. That's our jigsaw puzzle of life. And I and I maintain that every little thing, whether it was being given away, that makes you part of who you are. It's the toughness of your, your, your adopted father who teaches you that you don't have to be as tough as that. It's the gentleness of your adopted mother who cuddled you when, you know, you hurt, who was there for you when, you know, you just needed uplifting or reassurance, right? That's, those are all jigsaw puzzles. It's the going to church. Um, it's the boys brigade. It's the, uh, respecting law and order. It's, um, it's being kind, to, to people you meet. All those things makes up who you are. Now, with lots of people in, in society today, bits of those are missing or bits of those get bent out of shape so it doesn't fit any longer. So you get someone who will look at you and they can thump you in the face without thinking about you. I've never done that to anybody. But there are people who, the bits of their jigsaw puzzle that makes them up have got destroyed, got dented. They can't find a piece. They don't understand what's going on. They don't understand why they feel there's something always missing from our life. There's something not quite right, not quite there. And it's all because the pieces that make you up, somewhere along the line, someone either abused a piece of you, a bit of you, right? Or you made a mistake or you didn't put it back in the right place. And you're literally trying to hammer it down to get it to fit and it doesn't fit. So you've got to start again and go back to the point where every bit fits. And then you start adding on the pieces again. And once you do that, then you get to this complete picture. And I'm wise now because of when you get to my age, you've been through the university of life. And I maintain to everyone, all the talks I do all over the place, I say to them, listen, this pandemic we're having is no different when you're my age, to some of the hurricanes I've had to deal with in my life. It's the same thing. You know, there's a beginning to it. There's a tough period during, you don't know where, whether you're coming or going, you don't know whether you're in the middle of the tunnel or the beginning or the end of it. There's a light at the end of the tunnel coming, this hurricane is just about to, you think, blow over. And guess what? It changes direction, it comes again, it hits you. And you've got to pick yourself up. And just when you think you're better prepared, right, you look and there's still a hole in the wall and there's water coming in out. So you block it up and you start again. That's the pandemics we go through. You know, it's losing a loved one. It's, um, it's that thing that you were after in life and you didn't get it. It's the disappointments, it's the accident. Those are pandemics that every one of us will go through. So we should look at this last pandemic and go, let's make it a training ground for what will make us better for the future. And that's why when I say to you, my past, all those things are all part of what makes me who I am. And I believe that I benefit from everything that's gone on in my life. I believe that the people I deal with in the public benefit from me being who I am. I do think I'm uniquely different. 
I don't get upset the way people get upset. I think to myself, for every one minute I'm sad, I'm missing out on 60 seconds of happiness. So I don't want to be sad. If everyone meets me, they know I'm always going to be smiling because I had the days when I didn't smile. So, you know, there were days when it was tough. There were days when, you know, gosh, you were hungry. There were days when, where's the roof over your head? Where's it coming from? But because I believe that hard work will pay off, and I believe if you're thoughtful and you're kind and you're considerate and keep working hard, good things will happen. That's why I'm, I'm where I am. And that's why when I say to people, yeah, I'm always smiling because why not? I've got a wife who loves me. We celebrate our 25th anniversary in, in about a month's time from here. And, you know, we've got wonderful children and uh, we got, you know, and, and we're rich based on all the things that money can't buy. And, you know, when you do that, you know, you realize, listen, all these people out there wasting their time being horrible to people, trying to strive to make all this money, money, money. I have never seen a removals van at the back of a hearse. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting you. Um, <laughs> so at the point where you are bringing You're up your You're lost for words, Kirsten. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm just trying to, like, there's so much of the story. I'm trying to pull all the strands together because you're bringing up your daughter by yourself. But you haven't yet, yet made it famous yet, have you? So did your son, when did your son come along in the mix and what were circumstances like by then? I was, I, I, it was, uh, I was married to his mother and, um, and he came along. He, we didn't expect him to come along because she had miscarried about four times. She had a weak cervix. So every time she got to about two months, she would miscarry. So we decided never again. And then, unbeknown to me, she went and had an, um, I think they put stitches in or something like that. So she carried. Yeah. He was, uh, in fact, he was born three months premature. Um, and and he he and I, oh, man, we have such a brilliant relationship. I mean, he's he's a godsend, you know. And uh, uh, his mother and I broke up. And um, that was really acrimonious. Um, she, she had a kind of mental illness which only manifested itself when with the amount of times we went to court and stuff like that. But she did everything to kind of spoil the relationship between he and I. And he at age 13 made the decision that he didn't want her to see her anymore. And I won custody of him, even though it took a lot of years of fighting and the judges wouldn't believe half the things. And then one judge was very wise. And in the end, he said he needs to stay with his dad. So I won custody of him as well. So I was looking after two children. Right. And, uh, and he now, he works in the States, got a huge job, and uh, which is what I've always wanted. I wanted him to be able to actually, you know, put me in a good nursing home when I needed it. Um, so. <laughs> Florida, <laughs> here you come. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to run. And, uh, but, you know, the thing is, I love my kids, you know, knowing that they're all very different, but they're all very independent. They're all very successful in their own right, and because uh, you have a, a third daughter, uh, a third child, and another daughter, don't you? Yeah, Abigail. Yeah, yeah. She's twenty-five. She's still at home. She leave. Reckons she's leaving this year. Um, oh yeah, um, but uh, she's she's at home, and uh, she's she's great. I mean, she was studying psychology, and then she got type one diabetes, and now she's having to deal with that, and uh, uh, that's kind of changed her her outlook in terms of where she wants to be. So now she's a qualified makeup artist and she works quite a bit with me and does a lot of my makeup and, and uh, other people. Uh, not that I need much makeup because you can't mess with perfection. You can't um, mess with beauty. No, no, you mustn't. Um, but yeah, I think, look, at the end of the day, I maintain my life. I'll always remember I did a show with John Stapleton. It was called The Time, The Place. And they did a 30 minutes on my life. And at the end of it, he said, we need another half an hour or at least to actually go through everything that you've been through um, because we still want to know why do you keep on smiling? And the reason why I keep on smiling is, is honestly, as I just said, Kirsten, I've got every reason to smile. Why not? Come on. Come on. Can you imagine you have a choice about whether you're happy or not? And you choose, I'm going to be miserable. No. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> No way. Every situation you can look, you can turn it on his head and you can see something positive. You see, our life, imagine this for a moment with your eyes closed, a white sheet of paper, and there's a black dot on that white sheet of paper. When you open your eyes and look on that piece of paper, what do you see? 
the black dot. You see the black dot. And that's why in our lives, it's only a bad moment. It's not a bad life. You've got to look at that full sheet of paper and realize all the rest is you. All the rest is all that's good in your life. So things that happen to you are only a bad moment. The pandemic is only a moment. It's not a bad life. Were you, how old were your kids when, when you made it onto telly? Well, I made it on uh, when I was 45. Is that right? I can't even work out the years now. Let me work it out right. Uh, it's, it's 1993, right? It was when I started on GMTV. So that's um, 40. Oh, my goodness. Is that how long it's been? So that was, I was then 45, yeah? Am I right there? Right. I'm useless with maths like yeah, this. I'll just go right. with what yeah. you say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was actually 40. That's what I was when I, when I joined GMTV. Um, and, but, you know, the thing is, that was just the culmination of a long, long journey. In fact, all it did was allow me to showcase what I know was a talent I had. And, you know, I, in the 80s, late 80s, I used to do classes in London where people used to travel 20 miles to come to my classes. I used to have on a Tuesday evening in a school hall in Mill Hill, 125 people doing my classes. Every age group from athletes through to rugby players, everybody used to turn up to my classes. That's how come I got known. And that's how come that was, that's what really opened up the doors to television because I think a, a, a producer who was doing Gloria Honeyford's program called Sunday Sunday had heard about my classes in fact, before that, the Heart Foundation heard about my classes and asked me to go around the country talking to people about the benefits of exercise. So we did this 12-city tour, which took me into leisure centers, and the public would come in, and they could ask me questions. I'd demonstrate about exercise. I mean, I was totally self-taught at that stage. I learned everything from books and going to America, where I went to these conventions called, there was one called the IDEA, this International Dance and Exercise Association. And I learned all my stuff that I immersed myself in books. Dr. Cooper's book on aerobics, I immersed myself in that. So I just knew everything there was. So I did a heart foundation thing. And then Gloria Honeyford heard about my classes. They brought me in to do a slot on Sunday, Sunday. Before I knew it, Gloria wanted me to train her. I was traveling an hour and 15 minutes to train her three times a week in Kent. And that's how it started. But but I was, even now, I do these free classes now uh, that happened. And we get hundreds on these classes. And we get everybody from people with Parkinson, Down syndrome, uh, in a wheelchair, all joining in with able-bodied, fully-bodied people, right? Because I believe that activity should be all-inclusive. And everybody should have the opportunity to do it. But exercise teachers out there are terrible. They're bad. They perform and say, follow me. They don't teach. I teach. I'm picking on people. I'm showing them how to do it correctly. And we're keeping an atmosphere up so that they leave feeling good. Because my mantra has always been, and I learned it from a lady called May Angelou, people may forget exactly what you said. They may sometimes even forget what you did. But they will never forget how you make them feel. And, and in me. terms of your, I'm, I'm trying to work out the age of your children because your life will have changed because you were really successful on telly. You you went on to bigger and better things and financially that must have impacted and did it improve their lives or were, were you comfortable? Yeah, yeah. You know, how yeah, did that did. change, alter things for them? Oh, tremendously. Because I remember back in 1993, I started on GMTV and the world, look, I mean, I was, I'd go, we'd gone through difficulties before because as I told you, I was, you know, homeless for a bit, bed and breakfast for a bit and stuff like that. But I just kept working away hard. And I, I gave up working for other people when I was age 27. And I set up my own accessory business where in town, in Topshop and Lady at Lord John, all these places, I had these stands in, in their stores selling costume jewelry. And it was called D's Accessories. And I, I was one of the first accessory companies uh, selling everything from, you know, cones and bags and belts and socks, all those things. And that was my, my brand. And I had about 18 concessions around the country. But I didn't like it. I wasn't really enjoying it. And, uh, but when GMTV happened, what it did was it opened up a brand new world to me. I'll always remember, I said to my kids, I'd always said to them, I'm going to buy a house for you, for all of us, cash. And GMTV cash. happened. Yeah, GMTV happened, and there was a house going, I remember, in um, Kenton, in Harrow, in a cul-de-sac. 
and I, it was number 12, and I walked up there. This house was a three-bedroom house with the potential to make a fourth bedroom over the garage. And it had a huge garden. It was at the bottom of a cul-de-sac, which was, it was round at the bottom. And I paid cash for that house, right? Um, and that was the first purchase. And I said to them, we're going to do better than this. And the next year, I offered next door. It was a semi-detached house. I offered next door, right, cash for their house. And I bought both houses, knocked them together. And we all lived in a, what was then now a seven-bedroom house with huge garden. That's how we lived. It was great. It was great. But good things come to everybody. You know, you just got to keep on working away. You know, no one owes you anything. So you can't wait for your ship to come in. You got to swim out to it, right? But I believe, honestly, if you work hard, and I said it to you, I see so much blessings I get every day. Every day I get an offer comes in. I do all these free classes and I get people to contribute to my homeless charity and stuff like that. We've raised a lot of money for homeless charities, but I do it quietly. I don't shout it from, from the hilltops. Uh, and stuff like that. But I know how many people benefit from the way I am. And if you give, you get back in so many ways, so many ways. You, you're painting that at this point in your life, you know, everything's going brilliantly. But didn't you sort of turn your back all of on all of that because you made a decision based on your youngest daughter's health? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, in the year 2000, I decided that I was going to... Um, Stop it all. But also, I think GMTV had got to, it got to the point with them where they weren't spending as much money on the production of all my items any longer. Because when I joined GMTV, they were at the bottom of the ratings. And the moment I joined, thank God, you know, the ratings just started going through the roof. And so they used me for everything. I was every 15 minutes, I was on the screen, either doing birthday shout outs or my workouts. I travel the world. They'll take me one minute, I come home and I'm, I'm off to Mexico. I'll be filming in Mexico. Next minute, we're back, we're in Singapore. And we do items for kids, which go out on a Saturday morning called Time Out with Mr. Motivator. Next minute, we're at Disney World filming. And so it went on. I, I enjoyed the roller coaster ride, but then they decided rather than having three cameras following me and doing all my work, now they were at the top of the ratings. They could do it with one camera, which means that meant that everything I did, I had to do it twice. I was really disillusioned. I didn't like the way things were going. And I, I just decided I'm going to, you know, I'm going to move from the station, not do anything. But then at the same time, we noticed that when we went to Jamaica, my daughter, my daughter Abigail, she, um, she had no breathing problems when we were down there. We didn't realize that it was dampness in one of the bedrooms where she was in, and it's the spores that was affecting her. So we, I just said, look, let's sell up and go to Jamaica. So bought some land, sell up, set up a, an eco-friendly resort down there, a bit like a miniature go ape with four-wheel bikes and zip lines and all that kind of stuff. And technically, I was retiring, and it didn't happen. I started getting busier back in the UK. So then I had to be traveling in twice a month. I was doing 150,000 air miles to come in to do work here. I was just, and demand for me over the past 10 years just gone up and up and up. And this last year in particular has been probably the busiest year I've ever known um, because everybody, whether it's, I mean, our inquiry just come in now. Company wants me to do a five o'clock in the morning to Singapore, India, Australia, and then do an 11 o'clock into Europe and a six o'clock into America. And what do I do? I do 12 minutes of movement to music and a 12 minute talk about life, coping with pandemic. Staying from the edge, unplugging, um, and that's my life at the moment. You know, so it's 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 a great time. That's why I don't need much sleep, Kirsten. I can't sleep. So <laughs> there isn't any time to sleep. There's so no you time. came back from Jamaica. You you did that yeah. thing, and then you came back again. Yeah, yeah, I had to come back. And really, in the last, as I say, I was traveling in and out, and then in the last two years, I literally, instead of it being uh, spending more time down here, down there, I just was up here all the time, near enough. Um, so I'm selling up everything in Jamaica now. So if anybody listening wants to make me an offer, make me an offer and you can have it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What you got? I might be interested. No, I'm joking. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, oh, I've got this, it's a huge place. It's got, main house has got six bedrooms and then in the grounds we've got seven bedroom apartment and then there's another house on the grounds which is three bedrooms and then there are other buildings and zip lines and all that kind of, all of it, it's got all of it, got to go. I don't care. Good. But you're not frightened. You're not frightened of change at all, are you? Complete. Or the the current phrase is pivoting, isn't it? That's what people are doing. Pivoting. You see, too many of us hesitate, taking seizing opportunities 
that could better our lives. Because what we do is we sit down from round the corner trying to figure out what's going to happen around the corner if we make the decision. I say no. When you turn that corner, guess what? People see you who didn't know you're around the corner. That means you get more opportunities. So make your decision today and just get on with it and stop worrying about the consequences. Believe in your ability so that when you turn the corner, if you find that, guess what? The water's a bit deep, you learn to swim quickly. Don't get me in a soapbox now. No, no, no. I, I'm worried for you having to make this decision on this final question, Leanne, because I was going to ask you to have any regrets, but I'm presuming everything you've told me so far means you don't believe in regrets. Of course not. No. Why should you have regrets? Regrets are only based on the decision you made that you think didn't go the way it should go. No. It created the opportunity for you to now make another decision. That new decision you're making is now based on better ammunition. That means you're better equipped now. So why should I have any regrets? Nothing. Were you frightened of your dad? Was I frightened? No. No. I mean, the thing is, yeah, you looked at him and he was a brute. He used to work for the, um, he was a policeman. And in in the days of being a policeman, they used to use a whip called a cow cod. It was actually made with leather that was matted into this long kind of whip. And that's what they used to beat the thieves with if they caught them. Because in Jamaican places like that, you catch a thief and they beat him beat him badly. And the reason why they beat him is because very often he's taking away your livelihood. You're going to steal someone's cow, you're taking away their livelihood. So he was a bit of a bit of a beast like that. But at the end of it, he was actually quite soft, really. And I think, look, he did what he could based on his education, knowledge and the times. Those were the times. So let's not penalize him. Let's not use words like cruel or whatever it is, because no, We're doing all that based on what we now know. But the thing is, all of us who went through it, who went through that kind of family upbringing, I reckon are better for it and far better that I had it than not talking. It's one o'clock. One o'clock. Is that how long I've been speaking to you? Kirsten, Uh, I've been speaking to you for one hour. That's ridiculous. I know. We're about to wrap up with the the end of it all. So I... I return to my initial question. Would you rather... (laughs) (laughs) I'm really nervous about this. Have the childhood you had or the childhood you've given to your kids? I think all childhood that you're given at the time when you're given it is appropriate for who you are. If my children... I would not compare it. I wouldn't actually say I'd rather have my childhood now that I've given that. that I I wouldn't say that I'd rather have the childhood I'm able to give my children now Uh, for myself, because I think at the time, the childhood I was given is the best that you could do. And I think it's made me who I am to be able to give my children the childhood that they then had. Does that make sense? No, you failed my podcast. You've absolute, get off it. Get off my podcast. (laughs) The only thing thing is, this is the one podcast that everybody will listen to the end. The other ones, they fell asleep. (laughs) They fell asleep for 20 minutes. So you're not (laughs) going to go one way or the other. You're not going to say. No, because I don't think it works like that. I don't think you can make that kind of judgment because I think the childhood I had was right for me at the time and it's what's made me able to give my children the childhood they now have. I mean, you've scuppered the entire premise here. I know. Your premise, I suppose, is that most people go, I'd rather have the childhood I have now. Uh, well, no, you see, i rather my childhood because I grew up abroad and had incredible experiences and I feel like I'm letting my kids down. No, no, you're not. And you must never, ever say that because what you're doing, the life skills that they're going to learn, right, by you being able to do what you can when you can, are the life skills that they take forward with them. And then they will strive to either say, you know what, I'm going to be better I'm going to, or I'm going to replicate exactly what mom was able to do for me. No, no, no. Don't punish yourself. Don't beat yourself up. I don't think I've ever met anyone quite like you. You're undentable positivity is incredible it's an incredible force and it's a gift it's an absolute well is it a gift or or is it worked on is it let me answer it this way Kirsten I always say that if someone's not speaking from the heart you can tell it's almost like it's coming from a textbook I say every interview I do lots of times they always want to call me up and say look here's what we're going to talk about this is the kind of question I say I don't want to know they said, why not? I said, I'll tell you why. Because I believe our conversation will mean a lot more if you just ask me the question. I don't have any skeletons in the cupboards. You can ask what you like. I'll speak about whatever I like because what I, what you see and what you hear is what is who I am. There's no pretentiousness. I'm not trying to be someone I'm not. 
So I can speak about it almost without even thinking. I can be writing a, a book here whilst I'm talking to you because it's, it's me. It's me. There's no skeletons in those cupboards. They're still full of lycra, I'd imagine, are they? <laughs> Always. You know, it's funny thing. I've got two filming days coming up, right? And on both occasions, I've said to the people, can I just wear bright colours? No, no, no. We need you in your trademark. I said, but come on. No, no, no. We need you in your trademark. Please, please, please. <laughs> there you go. Can't get away from my like. Oh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking uh, to you. You've thrown a cat amongst you. the pigeons and I'm not going to let other people I interview. Oh, you're going to be the only person I'm going to allow to not have an answer. Based on everything that's gone before, you've justified it all. Um, thank, thank you so you. much. No, my pleasure. Listen, I mean, at the end of the day, I say this to you and I say this to everybody listening now. You're not given a good or bad life. You're given one life and it's up to you to make it good or bad. You've been listening to 16 Summers with me, Kirsten O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in the usual way. And we're always happy to hear your comments using the hashtag 16 Summers. 